It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, we'll be hearing about what life is like when you unexpectedly win a Nobel Prize. And learning about some surprisingly useful vestigial organs in ants. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Shamini Bundell. First up, in case last week's Nobel news chat didn't include enough prize pronunciations, we've got more loquacious laureate lines for you now. Donna Strickland, one of this year's winners in physics, tells reporter Lizzie Gibney about high-intensity ultra-short lasers and what life's like for a new Nobel laureate. So first off, congratulations. I, underst- <laughs> I understand that uh, you know, if we take you back to last Tuesday, the call from Stockholm was something of a surprise? Of course it was a total surprise, yes. And it's also at five in the morning, so... You know. <laughs> and the research that you won for was done in 1985 while you were a PhD student experimenting with lasers. What was it that you were trying to achieve at the time? My PhD project was actually doing something that required a high-intensity laser. It was supposed to work in a way that many, many photons of light would interact with an atom all at the same time. And to do that, you need to have all of your photons squeezed into a small volume. So that's what we were trying to do. But unfortunately, if you do that inside your laser, it blows up. And so the idea came around to say, okay, what we have to do is not squeeze all the pulses first, stretch them out so that it's over a great big volume, amplify it up, and then when we have all of the photons in the great big volume, you can squeeze it back down to a small volume, and now you have a really intense source of light. And why is it that you wanted to improve the intensity of the lasers? Well, we wanted to interact with atoms in new ways, and this type of laser can now have a force on an electron that's bigger than the force that holds the electron to the atom. And also it can be done very shortly. And so the electrons simply fly off the atoms when they're um, inside these 
laser shields. So if they're a greater intensity, that's useful both in, in, in physics, but also um, for applications, including corrective laser eye surgery? So when people get this corrective surgery, people would actually um, scalpel off the outside part of the cornea, and then they would use the UV laser to reshape the cornea to a new shape so you could see, and then put the flap back. What the ultrafast laser does is that because it doesn't have to just cut from the surface, it's only at the intense focal point that it does this damage where the electrons come off the atoms. You could actually put your uh, laser and scan it over your cornea, and it would cut underneath that. Instead of using a metal scalpel, you can use a laser. Sounds like a much less painful process. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And it can be very precise with the laser. Now, I wish we didn't have to talk about gender. Um, I'm sure that's a topic that you've spoken about a lot this week. But um, as you'll be very well aware, um, you know, you're, of course, just the third woman to win a Nobel Prize in physics. I guess, first off, do you think that women are currently underrepresented among the Nobel laureates? Well, three in a hundred years or something. Uh, (laughs) I think there are, are a higher percentage of women doing fantastic science than that. So probably were underrepresented by the Nobel Prize, yes. And lots of people have asked you um, about being a woman in physics. And I, th- and I think you said so far that you feel like you have always been you know, treated fairly and, and, and paid well. Actually, the University of Waterloo is always very careful. At one point, I got this letter, you know, saying that we look into making sure that women are paid equal, but we realized, and, and the whole long line at the very end was, and you were being treated equal, so you won't get a raise. And I went, well, too bad, because I would have <laughs> liked a raise, but at least I'm being treated equal. Cool. So, that's the way it is. <laughs> that's really good to know. And um, much has also been made of the fact that you are an associate professor rather than a professor. Um, and I think you said you'd, you'd never applied. Is that right? Yeah, now I really wish I just had. I had colleagues that were saying, why aren't you applying? You should be applying. And, and I sort of just said, OK, I'll probably do it next year. Um, and, and to get a bit meta, obviously, I, you know, I started um, these few questions by apologising for asking you about the very fact that you're a woman. How has it felt over the past few days answering so many questions on that topic? I, I do hope that we do get to the point. We all hope we get to the point where this just becomes not discussed anymore. I mean, so hopefully soon there's enough women and enough people of color and enough people, you know, every every group out there that feels that they get the recognition they deserve. And then we don't have to talk about it anymore. And any suggestions on how we can reach that point, either what, you know, advice to, to younger scientists or, or even to, to the Nobels as to, to how to make the system work better? I think we've been pushing for a lot of years and I do feel like women's lib was talked about a lot in the 70s and, and I certainly always felt that, you know, as a woman I could do whatever the heck I wanted. You know, and maybe a lot of women who felt that got out there and did it and maybe we let it slide again. Certainly this is a moment in history where the women around the world aren't letting much slide anymore. So I think things are changing again uh, fairly quickly again. Questions whether we can consistently keep moving forward until it's all done. And Donna, you now have an incredible platform from which to speak, being a Nobel laureate. Um, How do you you plan to use that? I don't know. It's it's kind of a scary kind of thing because I am somebody who just talks a lot without thinking. And um, people have been quoting me back and I went, did I actually say that? Did I actually say that? So that's got me a little scared. Um, I will have to uh, practice 
not just saying the first thing that comes into my mind. And uh, how has your life changed then since becoming a, a Nobel laureate on Tuesday? Oh, completely. <laughs> this, this is just uh, completely crazy. And, um, you know, I got to talk to the Prime Minister of Canada for the first time ever. And uh, he was very nice about it because I said, this is like your life all the time. And he said, no, I don't always get to speak to a Nobel laureate. <laughs> Wow. Well, enjoy it. Um, It sounds like it's hectic, but congratulations again. Thank you very much. That was Donna Strickland of the University of Waterloo in Canada chatting with Lizzie Gibney. You can find our Nobel coverage over at nature.com forward slash news, along with all the other top science news, some of which we'll be covering in the news chat later in the show. So stick around to find out why people are worried about the Hubble Space Telescope. But right now... Anna Nagel has arrived and brought some research highlights with her. What can tapeworms tell us about the bustling port of Lübeck in medieval Germany? Throughout history, humans have been afflicted by a dizzying variety of intestinal parasites. A team from the University of Oxford in the UK sifted through soil samples from centuries-old cesspits and retrieved the preserved eggs of parasitic worms. Then they extracted DNA. They found that tapeworm species in Lübeck shifted over time, possibly indicating a sharp change in the residents' diet around the 14th century. They also found that parasitic whipworm populations were more genetically diverse in historic port cities than in cities that were less well-connected. The researchers say this field of archaeoparasitology could be more widely used when digging into the historical record. You can uncover that research over at the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. Researchers have gotten around a long-standing problem with super-cold superconductors. Extreme cold is enough to transform some materials, like certain metals or ceramics, into superconductors, allowing them to carry electrical current with no resistance. But there are some metals that don't become superconductors when they get really cold. Instead, they enter a competing state where their electrons are arranged in a way that prevents superconductivity. But Japanese researchers have found a workaround. By applying a pulse of electrical current, they heated a piece of metal slightly before flash cooling it by hundreds of degrees in under 10 microseconds. This cooled the metal so fast that the competing state didn't have time to form, and the metal retained a stable superconducting state for more than a week. The authors say the technique could reveal more superconducting materials than can be predicted with conventional thermodynamics. Next up today... Oh, I I thought I was introducing the next piece. No, no, because you did the last one, so this one's me. Oh, okay. Okay. Sorry. Here at The Nature Podcast, we're a well-oiled machine where everyone knows exactly what their role is. Definitely. A bit, one might say, like an ant colony. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that, but carry on. Where so-called different castes have different jobs, all working together for the common good. Fine. Ants have evolved ingenious ways of controlling and regulating these different caste populations. Now, new research from nature has found a surprising mechanism for how this might work. Reporter Anand Jagatia spoke to Ahab Abuhaif about the work and started by asking him more about the makeup of ant society, and in particular, of a genus called Phydoli. You have winged castes and wingless castes. 
The males and queens, they have wings, and they use their wings to go up on mating flights. But the worker caste is completely wingless. There are 15,000 species of ants, and there's not a single case where the workers have wings. So most ants, all the workers look roughly the same, but in the genus Phydoli, they evolved this soldier caste, this soldier subcaste. So now the worker caste is divided into minor workers and soldiers. The minor workers do most of the tasks, and the soldiers are largely for, you know, defense of the nest and cracking seeds. Okay, so so neither workers nor soldiers have wings, but your paper was about these kind of little rudimentary wings called wing discs that pop up during development in, in the soldiers. Can you tell me more about that? So for most of my career, I actually thought they were useless. I thought they didn't have a function. And I think that's a fair kind of assumption because, you know, the idea of rudiments that pop up in development is absolutely a general property of all organisms. For example, in humans, there are gills that pop up and then disappear. We had known about these rudiments for a long time, since the time of Darwin and even before Darwin. But the idea is that we thought that this was just evidence that, you know, all of life is connected together uh, by common ancestors. Until one day, I actually decided to ask, well, I wonder what these rudiments are actually doing. How did you go about then investigating that? What kind of experiments did you do? So we tried to select a gene that was specific to the wings, that was, ex you know, largely expressed only in the wing disc. And uh, then we knocked it down. And the second way is that we actually went in physically and we ablated the disc with a technique called electrosurgical ablation. And what did you find when you kind of knocked out the, the, the formation of the discs genetically and kind of physically? When we first saw the phenotypes, we, like, our jaws dropped. This was something that, like, I felt not only redefined my own research, but just redefined the whole way I look at this whole class of biology of these rudiments and all these organisms. All of a sudden, when you knock down this little rudimentary wing, you now change the size of the head and the body of the ant. The reason why I'm so excited is because if you think about ants and their diversity, most of the diversity is in their head size and their body size. So most of the evolution and their diversification has happened in those two traits. And so you're changing actually the scaling of the head to the body. You ge generate a whole range of phenotypes from things that look like as small as minor workers to things that are almost the size of soldiers to all these intermediate ranging variants that you never see in nature. So is your thinking then that these rudimentary wing discs could have a role in, in determining that so that that's what determines basically whether an ant becomes a soldier or becomes a, a minor worker. It's somehow involved in that process. Yes, exactly. So with the growth of these rudiments, yes, it's determining the soldier subcast. So when these discs start growing, they must be sending out regulatory signals that start to coordinate head and body development or growth. One of the major discoveries, you know, of the paper, I, I think also was just crazy, is that the ants themselves have evolved the capacity to control the growth of this rudimentary wing disc to maintain the balance of minor workers and soldiers. And the minor workers are about 95% and the soldiers are about 5%. So when there are too many soldiers, the soldiers themselves can actually halt the growth of this rudimentary four-wing disc. As in they halt the growth in, in other larval ants that are kind of still growing. That's right. Well, so what they do is they have this inhibitory pheromone that they emit. And the inhibitory pheromone is sensed by the larvae. And, the, and somehow then 
That goes in and it stops the growth of this little rudiment that pops up in the last phase of larval development. It's one of the first examples that shows the really widespread regulatory control that these rudiments can have. And, and that this can affect evolution to produce novelty that really shows this so nicely. So do you think then that, that this idea of, of rudimentary structures being able to have much bigger impacts than we thought, is that something that could apply you know, across lots of other kinds of organisms as well? How, how general could, could this effect be? This is what I think is the really exciting part. Um, every organ uh, or trait has to coordinate its proportions with others. And so at a minimum, every trait has to have at least two functions. One, its original function, so if it's a limb, it's having its function as a limb, but it also has to coordinate its proportions with other parts of the body. So it has to have a communication function. And so if you lose the limb and you have these limb rudiments that pop up, they still have these communicative functions that could potentially play regulatory roles in development. And I think that's an absolutely general uh, property that, you know, nobody's really looked at. And so we now have to go out and explore. You know, this is opening up possibilities far beyond just, you know, our own field that, you know, is very exciting. And who knows where, where this will go? We have no idea. That was Ahab Abuhef from McGill University in Canada talking to Anand Jagatia. Find Ahab's research at nature.com forward slash nature. And finally this week, it's the news chat. And joining me in the studio is Josie Alchin, our social media engagement editor. Josie, welcome. Thank you very much. So we have two stories to talk about this week, one of which has been quite a long time coming. I was lucky enough back in 2015 to be in the room in Paris when the gavel went down on the 2015 Paris Accord for Climate Change. And one of the things that that accord said is that we were going to try to aim for 1.5 degrees of warming above pre-industrial levels. Now, that took many scientists a little bit by surprise, didn't it? Yes, it really did. And a few were sort of wondering about its feasibility. And it will really be a mammoth task to get even anywhere near that target. Tell me, what exactly are we referring to when we say 1.5 degrees of warming? We're talking about 1.5 degrees above what pre-industrial levels were. So we're um, standing at about one degree warmer. The world is on track to reach around three degrees by the end of this century. Once this target was set, then scientists scurried away and thought, hey, we'd probably better do some some science, some research to try to find out what a 1.5 degree world might look like. It was something that hadn't really been studied up until that point. Yes. So the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel uh, on Climate Change, were sent away to do some research. And uh, this culminated into this report that was released on Monday. And it really gives uh, governments around the world kind of a better idea of what they will actually have to do to um, achieve the 1.5 limit. So much of this recent report was based on the comparison between previous estimations for things like a two degree world and then what might happen in a 1.5 degree world. How might those worlds differ? So, for example, in a two-degree world, we'd see rates of extinction for species of of insects really increase. But in a 1.5-degree world, those rates would halve. In a two-degree world, um, the Arctic uh, would experience ice-free summers uh, once every decade, uh, whereas in a 1.5-degree world, we'd see ice-free summers every century. Even with a 1.5-degree limit, we would still see some noticeable changes. For example, um, heat waves, and even this year the European heat wave was really a very good example of climate change in action. We would see more wildfires um, as well, and extreme weather events such as uh, hurricanes and storms. 
So a 1.5 degree world is a considerably better off world than a two degree world, although there are still some problems. How likely is it that we might be able to achieve this 1.5 degree cap on warming? It will be incredibly difficult. There are steps that the IPCC recommended. It was noted that they did sort of sidestep the feasibility of this, but they did make some suggestions. For example, um, a massive increase in wind and solar power, planting bigger forests and more forests to kind of naturally pull in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. They suggested um, technology uh, by which we pull carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and then pump it underground. Although it should be noted that the technology for that is in its very, very early stages and scientists are still not yet sure on a global scale how that will be achieved. The previous IPCC report, which focused around a two degree world as this number that they were really looking towards, that predicted that the world was going to hit 1.5 degrees somewhere in the early 2020s. Now that has been revised slightly in this new report that's looking more specifically at 1.5 degrees. Yes, so we have maybe 10 to 30 uh, more years than scientists uh, previously thought, but that shouldn't detach from the focus that this is still a very, very severe risk. There appears to be two sort of conflicting factors here. One thing that comes out of this report is, hey, guys, we've got a little bit longer than we thought. And the other thing is, no, but this, there really is a very big problem here. What might that mean for policymakers? Yes, I mean, it could mean that policymakers think that they can, you know, rest on their laurels for the next for the next 30 years. But really, the consequences will still be there. One uh, social scientist um, at the Max Planck Institute, Oliver Geddon, um, put it quite nicely. I mean, he said... It's always five minutes to midnight, and that is highly problematic. Policymakers should get used to it because they always think there's a way out. So I suppose it's a case of wait and see both whether or not the predictions made by the IPCC report play out, slash whether or not governments around the world will get off their bottoms and really make the policy changes that people say that we need. But until we find that out, there is another very pressing problem that is currently not on Earth, in space, and that is some trouble with Hubble. Josie, tell me what's been going on with this famed space telescope. The Hubble telescope hasn't been able to collect data since last week due to a problem with one of its gyroscopes, which is the device it uses to turn itself onto celestial targets. Okay, so fundamentally pretty important piece of kit, this gyroscope. But it's not the only gyroscope on board Hubble, and it's also not the first time a gyroscope has failed on Hubble. No, that's true. So um, there are five others. There are six in total. In 2009, astronauts actually replaced all six of the Hubble gyroscopes, and three of those were of a new design that were meant to um, last a lot longer. Two of the older ones have failed before last week. And actually, when mission controllers went to switch one of the gyroscopes to the new design, um, it didn't work as it was uh, supposed to. Okay, so it's not worked when they've turned on, but at the moment, those in charge of Hubble don't seem particularly worried about it. They seem to think they're going to be able to get it going again. Yep, um, and in fact, the um, director of the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, which operates Hubble, Kenneth Sembach, has said, simply, don't worry, Hubble has many great years of science ahead. Which is important because if they can't get it going again from the ground, there's very little else they can do because Hubble was designed to be repaired by the space shuttle. Exactly, and that was retired in 2011. So what would have been a fix that could have been carried out by an astronaut sent up there um, can no longer uh, be done in that way. Now, what might this mean for science if, for some reason, Hubble can't be switched back on again properly? You know, what happens if these gyroscopes can't be fixed? It would simply be a, a huge loss. And it's kind of been highlighted in the in the reporting of this story that it just goes to show that Hubble will one day die. We, You know, one day we won't have Hubble. And that would be a, a huge loss to, um, to astrophysics. In the meantime, we just need to keep our fingers crossed and hope that the ground-based teams can fix these gyroscopes and get Hubble up and running again. Yes. 
and I'm sure there are going to be loads of people in the astrophysics community who are really, really hoping that this isn't the end uh, for Hubble just yet. OK, thanks, Josie. And that's it for this week's highly organised science podcast fun. But as usual, nature.com forward slash news has even more stories for you if you want to check those out. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. See you next time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.